Well, welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher, and we got PMA Master on our channel, and he would like to interview me with unspecified, ridiculous questions. I don't know what we're talking about, actually, and so maybe I have some vague understanding of what this interview is going to be about, but you're going to be interviewing me. Do you want to introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm just a, pretty much a nobody. <laughs> I'm Norwegian. I'm your average sort of Christian. No, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a pastor. I just study theology on my free time. That's pretty much what I do. And I'm an open theist because I deny classical definitions of omniscience and classical definitions of God because I see no reason to adopt them whatsoever. Uh, so I, I have this. This interview is like a selfish from my point of view. I just wanted to interview you because we're similar in so many ways, but there are so many differences as well. So I wanted to flesh out some of the the more nuanced parts that I hadn't heard from consuming about two or three hundred hours of your material so far. Whoa, <laughs> that's a lot. So what do you want me to call you, Stephen? Yeah, that's that's fine. That's oh, fine. okay. Yeah, uh, you have like a, a long Norwegian name, and yes. uh, I don't speak Norwegian, but I might be a little bit heritage Norwegian. Yes. And so highly recommend being Norwegian if you could be born that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can, you can like me, uh, receive 100% disability benefits that are not detrimental to your life if you do. Fantastic. Yes. That's my goal. I moved to Norway. <laughs> yes, <I> do. <laughs> All right. So. Uh, you know, uh, I'm rather blunt. Uh, I go for uh, just the, the the core of the things when I can. So I want to ask you, uh, just to build a foundation here, uh, what is prophecy? Prophecy is God's current intentions based on current circumstances to inform people how they should change their lives in order to avert that prophecy. Typically, prophecy is meant to be averted. God says, I'm going to go destroy this city. Um, you guys are evil. I'm going to come uh, punish you. And the intent of prophecy is to change people's actions and behaviors in order to better align with God. So uh, fundamentally, prophecy is repeating the words, the dictates, uh, information that god gives to prophets that's prophecy right would that be completely separate from god's plan or can be like god having a plan and telling us that also be a kind of a prophecy or is it just what you said and also possibly communicating a plan so you're there's going to be different types of prophecy within the bible and uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by plan. If I have a plan to win World War II, I might, I, I'm a general in World War II and I have a plan to win it, but everything under that plan might be shifting based on current circumstances to get to that, that ultimate goal. And so God has uh, an overall plan throughout scriptures is to build a community with man, uh, build communion, build a love relationship, 
And we see that plan go through various iterations and changes and contingencies and God attempting to reach man in various ways in order to fulfill that plan. So you could say the overall plan is a prophecy, but the details underneath that might change as to how God's trying to get us to that end goal. Would you say that uh, God bringing Jesus into this world was initially one plan and it, it was prophesied in this way, but once he was crucified, it turned into another plan? Or was it always the plan of God that uh, Jesus would be crucified for our sake? There might have been a plan after the fall of man to have some sort of atoning blood sacrifice for all time. So it's it, it, it's hard to definitively say w what plan was implemented when God seems to have always wanted either himself or an avatar ruling on a kingdom of God on earth in some capacity. We see a lot of Old Testament references to messianic type figures. We see that also reoccurring in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so this seems to be a long-term goal to establish this kingdom in some sense. I wouldn't say that the Jesus's crucifixion as happened was unnecessarily planned from from uh, the creation of the universe, creation of the world before do you mean the that, fall of man. Do you mean that as in the minute detail? Or the fact that he would be crucified. Okay, so there, there's a lot of different aspects to the crucifixion. Okay, so uh, he was crucified. He was crucified by Romans. He was crucified at that specific part of his life. All those things, um, a lot of times Calvinists will come to verses and say, oh, this happened according to God's plan. And they'll say, oh, this plan included every single cough of every single Roman soldier. Well, no, God has a general plan to establish um, a relationship with mankind. The atoning sacrifice, when did the atoning sacrifice plan start? Probably after the fall. When did a lifetime uh, commune with him or through, through Jesus, when did that start? Well, it could have happened before the fall. You know, so w what, what detail of what part of the plan was planned when? And th those are open questions. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in that, what would you say actually happened on the cross? That's a very good question. And, uh, I think Bart Ehrman is very informative in when, when he talks about how the apostles themselves don't quite agree or know for certain, um, the atoning sacrifice of the cross was not really talked about until Paul. And so right after the crucifixion, you have all these people. They're not Paul. They're, they're, they're the close disciples. They don't know what the meaning and the significance of the cross is. You Yet see this or ever during their life. Yet well, or ever during their life. Well, well, think about this. Jesus raises from the dead and he's with his disciples 30, 40 days after raising from the dead. And still they're clueless within the first few chapters of Acts as to any uh, overarching significance to the crucifixion. It's not till Paul gets on the scene that the crucifixion is given this wider atoning sacrifice significance. You'll, you'll see the speech in, what is it, Acts 3, in which it's this is just an evil plan 
that happened, but it's not thwarting God, but it's not given the atoning sacrifice take that, that Paul does. So I think the ermine, ermine approach probably is the most accurate that that's not tell Paul that these things start to get flushed out. And, and still we don't have even blood sacrifice in the old Testament. We don't know the mechanics of how that functions at, and in what specific ways. But I do see the cross as as a parallel to the blood sacrifices within the Old Old Testament, some sort of blood atonement for sins on a, a global scale. Something like that's going on. Mm. So uh, what are your primary reasons for denying, um, what's it called, the, the atonement... Uh, What's he called? The, the specific penal subsidiary yeah. atonement? Well, yeah. I don't know. They, they, they People like to come up with grand metaphysical schemes that don't, it don't seem intuitive to me. So it doesn't seem intuitive to me that there's a divine register of all negatives. And then this list has to be wiped out by positives to bring karmic balance to the universe anything like that and if there's any penal substitutionary people listening it, i i understand i'm not using any of the words you might use or or uh describing it any way how you might describe it but it just doesn't seem to me that a metaphysical fundamental metaphysical sin system exists in the either all right so there seems to be like a, a um, concept throughout the New Testament, which is laid out, that says that we, if you are, if we are Christians, that we are in Him, in Christ. I want to ask you, what do you think that this refers to? What I is th this? I think it. So prepositions are very flexible. It could mean a lot of things, but I do think it's affiliation with and okay. so um if if my kids are in my family or in me maybe that's referring to they're in my clan or or in my circle or we're we're a family unit that's that seems to be what they're talking about in, in my estimation but there's there's other possibilities i do want to point out one actually uh going back to our previous question real quick one interesting thing in the Bible that just drives people wild who care a lot about atonement theories and they put a lot of stock on Jesus's death. Uh, within Isaiah, you have the scene in which Isaiah is brought physically to God's presence and uh, he's afraid he's going to die. And uh, the, the angel says, don't worry, we're going to cleanse your sin. And his sin is cleansed with the fiery coal. Now, now, this throws people for a loop for a lot of reasons. The, the biggest reason is people who are big on, on atonement theories is this, this, is, this is before, this predates Jesus' death, and you have someone whose sins are being atoned, and it's not through blood sacrifice, it's through a coal. And so what I've heard in response for uh, from atonement-type people is, oh, that was actually Jesus' death being applied retroactively or something like that um no, that's that doesn't seem proactively maybe yeah there we go proactively that doesn't seem like a plausible explanation of what's going on there it seems like this cold mechanism was an atonement for the sins that we do see in isaiah and god has this methodology available to him to him 
without Jesus. But he does baptize with fire. Isn't that right? Well, what does baptize with fire mean? Yeah, right. What what does that mean? Do yeah, you... uh, which which verse are we referencing? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not good at remembering verses like uh, chapters. I think it's in John, right? John three, I think. Uh, when he says, "I," mm, okay, let's pull up. All right, um, Matthew three eleven, maybe. Let's let's All take right. a look at that. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, with a winnowing fork in his hand, and he'll clear the threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So I think that's referring to the apocalyptic judgment of God. You got to remember Jesus's gospel was that there's going to be a coming kingdom on earth. This kingdom would involve God establishing more immediate justice and ruling on earth uh, with men able to enter his kingdom and commune with him. And uh, during the initial implementation of this kingdom, he would gather together uh, all the wicked and the righteous of the world. The wicked he would kill and the righteous he would bless. And so when I see this phrase and and talking about a baptism with fire, I immediately think that this is the punishment of those who are the unrighteous during this apocalyptic event. Would you say then that is a completely uh, unreasonable reading to say that this fire, this this coal that was talked about in this Isaiah passage that you referred to, uh, can be read as uh, Jesus' atonement proactively being applied to them. Well, the problem is that we don't get any indication of that from the passage, or we don't get any... There, there's nothing in the Old Testament pointing to this, this coming atoning sacrifice in that way. And, and how, how, are, how are you going to have proactive atonement? How does that work out? <laughs> Well, for example, uh, so this is an interview, but I'll just give me a give you my two cents because you asked. Yeah. Uh, so, let's say that I have a have a plan, an atoning plan, and I know that this plan is perfect. I know that I'm gonna I'm gonna send my son down to the earth to to uh, be as a living sacrifice to the whole world. It's as if it's as if it has already happened, and not already because my plan is definite it's going to happen and so i can apply this already now okay so so in in this system that you just described there's not a metaphysical uh scoreboard right and all of this is subjective within god's mind such that he can just apply it whenever he wants ad hoc uh, yeah, I suppose. So if then, it, if it goes within 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 his will, uh, I can. Right. So here's here's the question. It's like uh, he's going to die if he sees God, and so God could just say to anyone, 
your sins are forgiven. Now you can see me. Is that the idea? I suppose that would have to do with his overall overarching plan. Like what his, what's his overall intentions about what this world is about. And that goes into my next question, which is actually, what is God's purpose here? What's he doing? What's God's purpose? Well, God's purpose for creation was building, building creatures with whom he could have a love relationship. You know, there, there's that song by uh, Toby Mac, I Was Made to Love. That That is actually the picture that we see. God makes man in his image. Um, he communes with man. He calls animals to the, ma- to the man to see what the man would call those animals. This is like a father-child relationship. He wants this relationship with human beings, but then human beings become corrupted. He becomes like, like a father. If, you're, if your child falls from grace and starts doing evil things, it's not like an anger he's experienced. It's a sadness. It's hurting him on a deep emotional level. And so you see the entire plot of the Bible is God's attempt to regain this intimacy, regain this relationship with man. And there's a lot of different iterations about how he tries to go about that. You know, he tried to go to men directly. didn't really work. Uh, they became real wicked. He, he tried going through Moses and a priest nation. How did the priest nation work out? Didn't work out too well. He sent Jesus. Uh, he grafted in the Gentiles. Uh, two different two different events. Um, sending Jesus, that didn't work out. Grafting in the Gentiles, has that worked out? Maybe, maybe not. But uh, it's it, the whole story of the Bible is God's attempt attempts to reclaim this love relationship, this affiliation, this familial fa- familial affiliation with mankind, and live in harmony forever. When we read revelations and other apocalyptic texts it's all about this coming kingdom of the righteous living with god forever with god right so there's some motif in the new testament about winnowing and there being a threshing floor uh that this world is a threshing floor what do you gather that this means that it's it's describing uh, this apocalyptic event on the day of judgment when uh, God returns, gathers up all the wicked and the righteous, he kills the wicked, and then he blesses the righteous. Mm. So, so is, is your thought that, um, I guess for what I'm hearing from you is that you, you agree with my general thought that since at least the fall, God has tried by various means to gather people unto himself, but not barring, but not using all means that he could. But that, that there's some kind of different purpose than merely, you know, grabbing us, shaking us, saying, oh, God. And like, so you better just believe in me. Boom. He could just do that with every single person, and that would be just fine. He would. I, I don't think it would work. I don't think it would work. <laughs> but, okay, hang on. Hang on. But that, that doesn't seem to be his purpose. That The purpose appears to be a belief in him through generally other means than direct intervention. He's tried direct intervention. People like Jonah, they run away with, they they don't want anything to do with them. He talks to people, they reject him. People who talk to God reject God. Balaam, Balaam rejected God. Balaam was in daily communication with God. 
the 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 direct the direct approach doesn't seem to work as well as you would think and and that makes sense uh if if you you've got kids and uh direct approaches don't always work with with your kids it's they they do have some effectiveness yes but right. uh, not always so uh, i'll talk a, a bit about uh when i came to believe because I think that will be helpful for for me to ask you what I some, some something about what I mean. So when I came to believe, uh, I repent and believe because God appeared to appear before me, and so I became very fearful, very very fearful, and uh, I was sort of coerced to uh, say what it was that I was so fearful for, and it was because I was fearful of dying because I was such a wicked person, right? So that's the repentance part. So the repentance part then sort of envelops you, and I didn't know what the solution was because where am I supposed to go? This God apparently has revealed himself to me in some way. Where am I supposed to go? Well, can I, like, pick up a rock and throw it at him? No. There's nothing I can do. There's just believe, right? And in that moment, when my thoughts went to believe and that that's what I apparently decided on doing as the solution, God, it was as if God's hand came into my heart as white fire and just purified all of me in that moment. And he showed me his character and forgiving and gracing me with all that he is. So th this appears to have been like the baptism of the Holy Spirit or something. Uh, I don't know. But <sighs> I sort of lost where I was going with this. That's really sad, actually. But okay. <laughs> what are your thoughts about what I just said? Is this something that you would uh, recognize? So as... So I, I think where you're going with this was uh, you you want to have God's intent not to be physically coercive, but yes. us coming to the true knowledge of God yes. through thank you. mental means. Yes, thank and you. Uh, I think what you're saying has a lot of truth to it. There's definitely a spiritual war going on, and there's a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that we don't know. There's There's different aspects to this world that even people can access. Like I, I did have that episode on DMT where Kevin, I think uh, he's he's in the chat here. Is that Kevin Henderson? Uh, maybe uh, uh, the rapid guy. He, he's talking about his experiences with DMT, how it opens you up to this this world that's parallel and above our, our world on yeah. a different level. I like and, that show. It was a good episode. Yeah, it's... There's there's definitely multiple aspects of this world that we we can't see. We don't understand the spiritual warfare going on in the background, and affiliation with God and having His protection definitely protects us from those dark elements of the spiritual realm. Um, there there's there's so many testimonies of people calling out on the name of Jesus who they who, they don't even believe in Jesus, and He offers them protection from demon possessions or whatnot that that they're going through trinity radio put out uh, a series of episodes in which they interviewed various people on 
their experiences with the occult, with the demonic, with the demonic realms, and uh, how they handled it and their, their coming to Jesus moments, which is very informative. Um, yeah, so I would not, I would not dis discount what you're saying right here. And I, wouldn't, I also wouldn't discount that God sometimes physically coerces people in order to get them to do stuff and, and believe him. I wouldn't discount that either. And so there's there's different tools in God's tool belt. And God, throughout the Bible, is someone who experiments with innovative ways in order to get things done. Mm. Yeah. Um, so fun fact, that was actually on acid. <laughs> so, so there's that. You're absolutely right in that this had something to do with occult stuff in general. But, you know, people are as likely to, I don't know if it's as likely, but as likely to become Wiccan as they are to become, you know, anything else uh, as this substance, uh, these substances sort of uh, enter an individual. But, yeah, I would say that they do enter, uh, they open a person up to the, the spiritual. But then sort of comes the, I want to throw the Calvinists a bone here and ask you, why do some believe and some don't? Well, God, if if you find out, tell God because God has trouble throughout the Bible. Why don't you guys believe to me? Believe in me? I've tried absolutely everything, and so even God doesn't know. Yeah. And so it's we we have genuine free will, and people tend to be stubborn. Yeah. So it's it's like Calvinists. You're asking me a question that God doesn't even know. You know. Yeah. So uh, it seems like uh, it would be an objectively better thing to do to believe than a, than to not believe. That's just it's just a better thing to do. You've talked a bit about this um, these choice figs uh, and stuff. And uh, is it your contention that yeah, it is a better thing to believe, and yeah, we are better for believing. Well, that, that's a subjective evaluation. I'll, there are people in this world, I've met plenty of them, who say, even if God's real, I wouldn't believe, him, believe in him. Calvinists will say this about Yahweh of the Bible. If, if what you're saying is true, I wouldn't believe in that God. And some of them seem to actually believe it. Like, like no kidding, if, if open theism was true, they would not worship God. Like, yeah. like no joke. And so... It's a subjective evaluation. I think I think it's preferable to believe than not, but not everyone agrees with that. Yeah, a verse comes to mind where God says that uh, I've I've wanted you to believe in me, but you keep on believing your imaginations instead, and that sort of gets me into Platonism a bit. Isn't Platonism imagination? What are your thoughts about what? the origins and downfalls of Platonism really are? Well, the origins are, are definitely an attempt to transcend probably our day-to-day -day experiences and look for solutions outside the Godhead. And it came from Plato, and Plato is not particularly concerned with Yahweh. He had a particular disdain for the Greek pantheons, and, you know, in, in the Bible, there are sub-deities to God. So these pantheons very likely could exist and are angelic or demonic elements that are part of this spiritual warfare. But uh, he, he particularly didn't like 
any of these legends of Zeus coming to sleep with ladies on earth, things like that. He thought that those were all terrible and we should all look towards the sublime. And so his, his main intellectual focus was on this transcendence to the other transcendence from, from this world around us. And, uh, it does since we're talking about DMT, and so when I read the DMT stuff, so that wasn't. Uh, there's some comments about Kev, Kevlar, Kevlar. Um, that wasn't written by Kevlar, but Kevlar affirmed in the comments that he had similar DMT experiences. It, it reminds me of those individuals who who let those DMT experiences uh, consume them. Consume them. They want this transcendent experience where they. They dive into the depths of reality and come to this pure light truth. And if if you read DMT experiences and then you read Augustine's Platonic transcendence experiences, uh, DMT, that's a natural chemical that your brain naturally produces. It really sounds like he's having a, a DMT trip that he's able to, to trigger naturally within himself in order to get to this state. And so I, I think all these all all this paganism towards this transcendent truth and this transcendent truth is not Yahweh, the God of the Bible. I, I do think they're interrelated that they, they want something to replace God with. They want something pure. They want something above reality. And yeah, reality is not optional. You're not going to be able to escape reality. That's very nice. Um so so you're saying that there's something about god not being sufficient then to right have, have some people want some perfection some uh some um imagined per perfection and they replace that with the image of god as it is explained throughout scripture yeah and this this could actually just also tie into our natural human cantankerous or, or our, our need to be right all the time. Let's, let's say there's Star Trek fans and they're arguing among each other about. Hey, I just got to say me and my wife were binging Star Trek. Uh, well, original series or the next generation. And right now we're on Voyager. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's, there's some actually really interesting uh, Voyager episodes. I'll, I'll have to do a compilation sometime of the best ones, but but let's say there's two Star Trek fans and they're arguing over like the blueprints of the Enterprise. And they're like, oh, this has to be like it. Guess what? The Enterprise is fictional. And so there's two people arguing over something that's just a made up concept, which there might not even be a right answer. And a lot of times in theology, you, you get into the same type of arguments. People want, want to set down these metaphysical rules. Oh, God is the most perfect being. And guess what? Uh, I got this system of all these rules, and then if you just look at my rules, that meets this definition over here, so I'm right and you're wrong. And then they could argue about Star Trek-level non-concepts that don't have any bearing on reality. Mm. You see it all the time. Yeah. So I've heard you say many times, you don't have to be a Christian. You can be a Platonist if you want. Yeah, it's like if, if you totally throw away God, you know, Platonism, it's for you. It's you got everything that you want. You got all, all your value sets that you desire, that you highly value and you care about very much. 
uh, but you don't have that pesky thing, the Bible, getting in your way. It's a win-win. Mm. So is it so that you actually consider classical theists to not be Christian, or is this sort of an on-the-point sort of you being a bit antagonistic to, to create a point? It depends, because you, you got those people who would not worship Yahweh of the Bible if, if they believed he actually exists in, in that capacity. And so those people should honestly convert to Platonism. But there, there are individuals who care about the Bible. And if you harp on their disconnect between what they say uh, about God, that they believe about God, and then what the Bible says about God, if you, if you focus continually on that disconnect, some of them come around. Some of them say, yeah, wh why the heck am I discarding all, all this, this biblical data about God? Why am I doing that? Uh, maybe maybe this guy's got a point that the Bible should be my priority. And then the third thing that does is it stops stupid arguments about their nonsense metaphysics. I'm not going to have a debate about Star Trek transporter rooms and where it fits on the blueprints of the Enterprise. That's a stupid debate to have. I'd rather talk about the Bible and what the Bible says. They want to engage you on their systems, their, their abstract metaphysics that don't have basis in reality because that's what they really care about. I don't want to have that discussion. Why, why would I subject myself to that? So it's, it's, there, there's a triple purpose there, and it, it meets that purpose pretty well. I'm going to turn that on you and ask, if God, in fact, does conform to Platonic ideals, as we see through uh, Plato, Augustine, and uh, Thomas Aquinas and such, would you believe in him? Would, would that be somebody worth believing in? Well, if you're you're saying if there is a system in which all my actions have no basis in free will, would I do something that, according to my free will? And so the question itself assumes that I would have the free will to make that determination. Whereas in reality, if that system is true, then I I wouldn't have the choice whether to do that or not. Every everything that happens within my brain would be the process of predetermined, pre-divined pre uh, outcomes and uh, and mechanisms. It's, it's kind of like the C.S. Lewis quote about atheism. He says, if atheism is true, then there's no intelligent God who has configured my mind in order to actually come to logical, sound reasoning. And if that's true, uh, if there's no God who did that, then the process of my reasoning is a direct result of natural occurrences or just chemicals in my brain. I really, really have no reason to trust my own thoughts at that mat on, at that moment. Um, we we could believe our thoughts because there is a God. If there was no God, we couldn't trust even our own thoughts. Right. Um, so, but let me say that. Let's say for for argument's sake that. Uh, God's sort of um, uh, pure actuality and divine simplicity act towards the world, creating it, was actually in such a way that our free wills, as we understand it, are actually, and not just pretend, uh, preserved. Would that God still be uh, worthy of worship? Well, um, if... If it saves me from an eternity in hell, I'd probably be like, all right, I'll, I'll worship you. Whatever you want me to do, 
I, I don't want to suffer for all eternity. Kids, we're worshiping this one now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, it, it's still important to be a rational actor, but maybe maybe I might have subversives of thoughts like, you know what? Um, raping all those kids in the Soviet gulag probably wasn't a good thing. Maybe I might have those thoughts secretly. <laughs> yeah. I was talking about this um, a bit with you a bit pre-show, but I want to ask you again now and preface this with this. You are like a juggernaut you are probably as far as i'm aware the most able person to speak directly to an individual about open theist things so my question is why have you stopped doing direct interactions um what kind of direct interactions like direct this is a direct interaction yes but i'm an open theist like i didn't come to you like hey i'm a calvinist like bleh. Well, it it could be it could be because I blocked every single Calvinist who uses laugh reacts <laughs> other than arguments, and so my life my life like my life has been very peaceful lately. It's it's not it's not too shabby, but if you have a guy you want me to talk to, I'll go talk to that guy. No, uh, so my question was rather leading into this: What is it about debates that you don't think is good? Why do why do you think that debates are generally unfruitful? Because I would love to see you in more debates. Like personally, uh, I, would just, I would just I, I shake at the thought of it. Yeah, I I, I do like debates. Um, you, but you do have to understand the limitation of debates and uh, the winning strategies in debates that uh, that people employ. A lot of times, debates are based on emotional resonance with with the audience and so uh, the classic example that i give is uh in in middle school or high school or something like that we in in my political science class i i was uh i was told to debate in favor of dropping atomic bombs on japan and my opponent was arguing against it and i got up there and i list facts and figures about the resolve and and estimated casualty numbers and stuff about a main mainland invasion. So I, it's all stats and figures and arguments. And then my opponent, yeah, and my opponent gets up there and he's just making jokes and being silly, and uh, and the audience is laughing. And afterwards, everyone's like, "Oh, he schooled you in that debate." It's like, what? Who? What? What debate did you listen to? What's going on here? Yeah, like we're it, humans, and that's that's pretty much a bad thing when it comes to persuasion. Yeah, so you could go look at the James White-John Sanders debate. John Sanders is like, oh, yeah, there's things we're figuring out, and it could be this, and it could be that. And, and he's answering all James White's things, and James White is just, like, hammering at him um, ad hominem-type attacks and being confident. And then everyone who watched that debate is like, oh, James White won. It's like, did you... Did you map out the arguments and see who said what and how it was responded to and, and what arguments James White's dropped? If if this was a paper debate, James White would not win this debate. But because of the presentation, um, then, he, yes, he, he wins the debate in the minds of the audience. And so I think debates are extremely useful. I have several debates. I have uh, my very angry Calvinist internet debate that I posted on my channel. I got the Isaiah debate, which I love very much. I got the debate that I did with Will Duffy about open theism. I think I got a few more debates, but wait, 
you had a debate with no, okay, it was Bat Slick and Will Duffy or No, no, Will Duffy was on my team and it was oh. it was it was hosted on another channel and uh, Dane and Dan were our opponents and that was a debate oh, yeah, on Yeah, I Disney. remember. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Dane and Dan were actually good human beings who were thoughtful opponents. And mm -hmm. so was in my Isaiah debate with with Madden, Daniel Madden, uh, who I had on the show to discuss Job. Uh, those are good debates with rational, intelligent, thoughtful people. And those those are helpful debates. I, I do like caustic debates as well, because then, then you get to destroy people's internally, just destroy their soul. And sometimes that's good to do as well. And so um, I'm, I don't think I've ever said never do debates or debates are useless, but debates do have emotional components that need to be considered uh, when you're doing the debates. Right. So from the evangelical and larger Christian society's point of view, we are heretics. Um, why, is, why do people go to that so quickly, do you think? Yeah, Dave points out that I had my drinking liquor debate on that uh, random talk channel for multiple hours as well. <laughs> so that was good, too. So uh, why do you think people call us heretics? Yes. Is there like I, a foundational motive here, or is that actual their actual opinions, do you think? Right. It's, it's this, it's a, th there's a tactic within society that when you don't want to actually address arguments, you, you resort to character assassination. And then if you assassinate their character successfully, then you don't actually have to respond to the things that they're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you see this in politics all the time. People say, oh, that guy is a white supremacist. And so the argument he made about statistics, even though that's actually true, um, you need to ignore the argument because who it's coming from. And so it, the heretic label is a way to protect their flock from information that might sway them to to uh, to holding ideology that's against the mainstream, the people who can control the mainstream uh, theological world. Yeah, I mean this uh, this appears to be like systematic across society that the easiest path of uh, denying truth or denying at least a conversation about what truth is, is to just label it X, Y, and Z. And because people are people, they see the labels and they think, oh, yeah, we can just dis dismiss that. Yeah. So, so uh, if, if you watch the Will Duffy, Matt's. Are we still live?
Is this still going? Are people actually still uh, watching? Or no, this is uh, Streamworks. So I'm just gonna wait a moment to see if uh, Chris gets back. I got the show. Um, hello, I'm an optimist. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm back. My computer had a hiccup. Uh, I, I'm having graphics card issues, but Good. it works. Uh, I was talking about the Matt Slick debate in which he's debating Will Duffy, and uh, you. How many times does he mention Mormon? The debate's not about Mormonism. Will Duffy doesn't claim to be a Mormon, and he just keeps saying over and over, "Well, that's what Mormons say. That's what Mormons say." Um, Matt Slick, he might be a little mental in the head, but he knows exactly what he's doing. He's he's doing this poisoning the well. Uh, he wants people to hate open theists not because of the things open theists say, but because of associations which might be negative. Yes. Okay. Um, so I think I have three like major questions and uh -oh. some, some small ones. Okay. So I've the first major question is, I've heard you talk about the Trinity a couple of times. Really? And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I haven't got your actual opinion of how you view God uh, throughout Scripture, uh, who Jesus is in correlation to that, and sort of how you view the Trinity. The times that I've heard you talked about it, it's been sort of like, oh, it's possible that it's this, it's possible that it's that, but what's your actual opinion? Well, do I have to have actual opinions on the matter, on something no. that's controversial? No, you, don't. you don't, but so, I, so my, my, you. My, my wife is like, uh, I don't understand this whole Trinity, Jesus being God thing. It's like, listen, wife, the Bible just calls... Jesus, the Son of God, throughout it's it's the normal language used to just call him that. You don't you don't have to worry about the technical details; they're unimportant. And uh, people get real worked up about Trinity stuff. And so, I I do think that the ancient Israelites did believe in uh, divine fragmentation. And so, if Jesus is part of God, or Jesus is God in the traditional sense, it would have to be using some sort of mechanism like divine fragmentation in order for that to be true. Again, there's there's a lot of texts within the Bible that aren't very clear. Just the normative language about Jesus is that he's the son of God. Um, probably the closest we get to uh, some sort of metaphysical statement about the nature of Jesus is Colossians 2, in which Paul is arguing against the Platonists. And Paul thinks there's really something divine within Jesus, something divine in such a way that it would violate Platonistic ideas of simplicity and change. You don't see the opening of John as particularly metaphysical like that? Uh, it, it, it could be, um, but there's, like the Mormons will translate, in the beginning was God, or was the word, and the word was a God because of definite article concerns, things like that. Uh, it what what's John getting at? What what's he trying to communicate? You know those those are kind of open questions. I mm -hmm. do see, I do see. I, I don't think John was trying to talk about those metaphysical issues. 
Whereas I do think Paul in Colossians 2 is a direct confrontation against Platonic ideas of divinity. And I see his his understanding of Jesus as definitely contradicting those ideas of Platonic divinity. Remember, like the Valentinians, they saw Jesus as not a human like us. Like he ate and drank divinity. He didn't have bodily functions. He couldn't have these things because those types of material things were, were changed, their degradation, their attachments to the material world. And Paul's fighting against concepts like that and using Jesus as as what he claims is the fullness of God in body form. Right. So uh, it sounds like uh, you've been rather intentional then and in sort of holding back some of your own opinions on this matter. Is that true? Well, yeah, people get really worked up about something and I don't, I don't care about it as much as they do. And so I'm not going to, it's like atonement stuff. It's like the people get real worked up about atonement stuff. It's like, so if I start talking about atonement stuff, I, I just don't care as much as they do. Yeah. And so it's probably not something to try to get myself burned over. <laughs> right. So uh, would you personally perceive Jesus as divine? Yeah, I think that's uh, Paul's implication in Colossians 2. Uh, uh, he, he has the fullness of God within body form, which I don't think is a contradiction in the Semitic mind. The, the physical can be divine, and I think that's Paul's point there, that uh, the physical can be divine. These Platonic categories are false categories, and Jesus is evidence of this. Hmm. So uh, several times when I've heard you talk about prophecy, it hasn't been apparent to me whether or not you think that Jesus was actually prophesied or not. Would you say that Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament? And for, for specifically, what passages would you refer to if you were to refer to Jesus being prophesied? Yeah, they definitely had messianic ideas and aspirations. But the, but the traditional Psalms passages are not prophecies like you would uh, you would expect an actual prophecy to be. And even Isaiah fifty three is it's not clear that that's referring to a messianic figure rather than Jesus, mm. or, or rather than rather than Israel. I'm, I'm I got a cough real quick. So uh, we we don't have very definitive statements other than the messianic expectations, and of course Isaiah three by the time of Jesus was definitely considered as messianic in nature in describing a Messiah. Uh, you have uh, the scribes within Jesus's birth looking towards Bethlehem, so they're not getting that out of nowhere. They're searching the the Old Testament for references which could point to fulfillments of their messianic expectations mm. so do you agree that or not agree that a lot of what jesus did during his ministry was to fulfill prophecy yeah but it's it's not fulfilling prophecy in the manner that we think is fulfilling prophecy like for example to fill, fulfill prophecy, he had his, his followers go out and buy swords. He's like, okay, guys, um, we got this prophecy in the Old Testament. We need to fulfill it. So uh, get get some money together. Go buy some swords so then we could check mark this off our list. Uh, the fulfillment of prophecy was the Jews thought in terms of cyclical history. And so patterns repeat themselves and the truth of current events can be 
known from the patterns that they fit based on past events. History is cyclical in that way. And so a lot of the events that are described in the New Testament as fulfillments of prophecy, if you turn back to those references, they're not prophecy, what we think of prophecy whatsoever. What they are are probably like prefiguration events, which can be used as data points to establish patterns which are repeating in the current. And so when Matthew says that uh, out, of, uh, out of Egypt I call my son, he's not talking about Jesus. It's, it's, it's a passage about Israel, um, but it's repurposed for Jesus to show that this pattern is reoccurring because events are cyclical. Things happen in cycles. Things happen in, in patterns, known patterns. Could it be that uh, God is letting us know his plan and sort of giving that through Isaiah? What are your, what are your reasons as to say that, uh, you know, um, Isaiah 53 is not referring to Jesus in particular? I, I think I had a whole Facebook discussion on this in which um, I, I, need, I need to actually find it because I made all the arguments there. This lady was very adamant that this definitely referred to Jesus. I said it could refer to Jesus, but uh, the Jewish position is that it's referring to Israel. And then what, the more, okay. I, sorry, I just, why is it important what the Jewish position is? Because if we consider that uh, uh, Israel had, by and large, bowed a knee to Baal, so to speak, and that there was only a remnant, why is there important to why is it important to consider in the least what the Jews think? Because they're they're another party, they're another perspective, and so there there are alternative perspectives out there on what's going on in this passage, and they need to be considered as alternative perspectives. So let's say there's an Old Testament scholar who's an, an atheist. Um, of course, they're not going to take Isaiah 53 as applying to Jesus. They'll probably take the Jewish view that it's re referring to Israel within context. Um, but it does provide us a third party from whom we could bounce our ideas off of to see if it holds. So a lot of times um, when, when we're talking about reasonable readings of chapters and verses, I, I'd like to throw out this uh, thought experiment. If you went to 10 people at the mall who have normal reading comprehension abilities and you ask them what the passage says, um, what will the majority of them say? What will, will any of them have the Calvinist reading? Like, for example, in Isaiah in which which God measures the water in his hand. And then my opponent in the debate said that, well, he's the measure of all things because uh, he, he creates all things. And that's what it's referring to. It's like if you went to the mall and grabbed 10 random people who could read, zero of them, zero of them would have that reading. That's not within the normal range of meaning of what those words mean. Counting, however, is. If God counts the water in the, his hands, guaranteed at least one of those people are going to be like, Maybe maybe the verse perhaps means God counts the waters. Maybe that's going to be there. So so it we do need to look at Isaiah 53 in detail and see if it's referring to Jesus or Israel because within context um Israel's referred at for time and time again. Of course, I don't have all my notes handy right now and this is just shooting from the hip. But when I when I looked into it with my debate with this lady, a lot of these 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 passages, the, these uh, these statements that are referring to this individual have been priorly applied to Israel within previous chapters. So it seems like it's it's still talking about the same subject. 
yes, they're, 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 it could, it could be a messianic figure. It could be Jesus. And definitely by the time of Jesus, this was considered a messianic passage. So mm -hmm. I, I think we got hints of that within uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, maybe, and uh, something like, maybe like the Epistle of Barnabas. I, I'm shooting off the hip because I don't got my stuff here. This is going to sound needlessly antagonistic, uh, but disregard that. Do you consider yourself a Christian? Yeah, a follower yeah. of Christ. I'm I'm an apocalypticist too, and so I'm a follower of Christ in in the most basic ways that I accept His gospel, which a lot of a lot of Christians aren't apocalypticists. A lot of them are. Oh, we're, we'll die. Or the whole whole purpose of the Bible is dying and going to heaven and living with. No, it's. Jesus's ministry was all about an apocalyptic event in which God would return to earth, uh, gather up the wicked, gather up the righteous. He'd kill the wicked and he'd bless the righteous and establish his kingdom with which we would live with him forever. So in the most basic sense, I affirm Jesus's gospel. This is what he actually preached. He didn't actually preach about himself. If you look through his ministry, anytime he talked about himself, it was in private and not to the crowds. And then he told all his followers, his disciples, his closest disciples, don't tell anyone this thing I'm telling you, you know, and, and, and no one, no one knew it in the outside world. That's why these things had to be written down in the gospels so that followers of Jesus who weren't privy to the secret knowledge actually could have access to what he secretly taught his disciples about himself. I think perhaps that's an overly generalized statement that Jesus never talked about himself except in private. Don't you agree that perhaps that's a broad generalization? But probably if I looked through the scripture, I could probably find some place where he talked about himself. Truth yeah. Well. Yeah. For for example, when, when the scribes wanted to stone him, when he said before Abraham was, I am. But that's not like a public ministry setting. This is a private conversation in a very specific concept. You're not going to find a sermon on the mount in which he's talking about, well, here's some ideas about Trinity. Uh, here's some ideas about incarnation. You're, it's, it's of not, course. Yeah. You're not going to get that. That, yeah. that wasn't his gospel. That wasn't his ministry. That's not what he was teaching people. Yeah. Um, there was one more, I think. Um, what was it? Uh, I think it's gone. So so let's just go to the light light questions. I have some light questions for you. Some uh oh, easy, uh, some very good ones. What's your favorite Bible translation? Well, uh, I, I've talked about this before at an episode about the ESV and the New King James, and I like the ESV because the ESV uses Dead Sea Scrolls in order to interpret some of the passages within the Old Testament that don't make as much sense with uh, the, the the traditional Masoretic text translation. So I like using the ESV for the Old, the Old Testament. It's fine to use for the New Testament as well, but but the ESV does use critical Greek text for their New Testament translation. And I don't think that the critical texts, they're, they're texts from like Alexandria, which is a very untrustworthy location. I don't think that they're the most accurate to the original. So I think in, in respects to, to the New Testament, Maybe New King James would be better because that's based off of the Texas uh, Receptus with, with some additional content. Cool. Uh, so what's your favorite Bible commentary? <laughs> the word biblical commentary 
a very expensive, expensive set of texts. But uh, I have parses, uh, bits and pieces of it. But for example, for the commentary on Job, um, it uses David Klein's, the, the world-renowned expert on Job, who I love everything that Klein's does and writes. Well, not everything. He has some like feminist identity stuff. Uh, but he's 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 a guy who's actually written dictionaries of of Hebrew words, and this is the guy talking about the translation and meaning of Job. And so, what Word Biblical Commentary will do with each each Bible verse is it'll go through and it'll it'll have like translation notes. It'll have a, a unique translation that the author of the series does for the text, and then it'll talk about why certain things were translated in those ways and talk about alternative translations. And then it'll have an additional, a different section where there's commentary on that same text. Mm. And so you're getting an amazingly good picture of any specific text in question. I, there, I had a Bible study yesterday where we went over Hebrews and I pulled up the reference in Hebrews to get a better understanding of what's going on in the end of uh, Hebrews 12. It's just amazingly useful. Mm. I really like Adam Clark. Uh, he as, he's good too. Yeah, I use yeah. him primarily. One of the best things is that uh, his is uh, not copyrighted, so that it's it's yeah, found it's in great. like Esword and yeah, and you get a lot of he gives a lot of good. I think I think he's one of them who during Jesus's turning the water to wide, he points out all the reasons why it's actually alcoholic rather than not. I think Adam Clark was one of those guys, but but he's got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, we're definitely not prohibited from drinking alcohol. I can say that for sure. Yeah. So I think that was it. No, there was one more thing. Uh, at your God is Open site, I see this. Uh, I see this uh, chart of different kinds of open theists. Uh, yes. God is open. Hmm. I'll pull it up on screen as well. Yes. I just uh, wanted to hear some of your thoughts about this list, uh, in particular about some of the uh, the words. What is neo-Molinism in terms of open theism? Okay, so I'm going to real quick to go over an overview of this chart for people who are unfamiliar with it. So I developed this chart at a time in which open theism was trying to uh, define concepts within the open theistic world. There's a lot of antagonism between various sects of open theists as to who properly has the title and and uh, the d various beliefs that are fundamental to open theism. So I I built this chart in order to illustrate to all people that there are various types of open theists who believe a, a diversity of different ideas, and it's it's not monolithic. And so uh, w one of the ways that this is useful is it tells people that they don't have to be an open theist like Thomas Ord, or they don't have to be an open theist like Chris Fisher. They could be an open theist like Greg Boyd or, or William Hasker. There's There are different options. We, we shouldn't pretend that it's monolithic in the sense that, it, let's say someone came in and refuted everything I did. That doesn't mean open theism is dead and gone because yeah. there's other other avenues to open theism. There's, there's other spectrums of thought. And so this chart basically 
um, divides the spectrum by how much stock individuals put into either philosophy, reading the Bible through in philosophical lenses, or just disregarding the Bible even, and then the biblical uh, fundamentalism. What, what would we probably consider fundamentalist Christians? What the Bible says is what the Bible means, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, we, 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 we don't do this these hermeneutics where we just dismiss the text for the text's sake. And so uh, on the far left end of the spectrum, Alan Roden, I actually need to redo this chart and move him over because I wasn't as familiar with his work as I am now, and he would be moved towards the biblical side of the spectrum. Thomas Ord, he's he's there. William Hasker, he does he he doesn't care at all about you know <laughs> like what the Bible says. He cares very much about his philosophy. Thomas Ord, there there was a conversation that he was having with someone who was reviewing one of his books, and and the guy who's reviewing this book is one of the names on this chart. I'm not going to say who, but he tells him he's like. Yeah, my problem with your book is that it it uh, contradicts this and this and this scripture, and so it's not true. And then Thomas Ord responds, "Well, yeah, I don't think those verses are useful in talking about this subject." And like, <laughs> and 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 the reviewer guy was all confused. Is like, what? Um, so his priorities are a little bit different. It's it's the priorities are not in the Bible says what the Bible means, and of course you got Greg Boyd who who introduces a new hermeneutic called. Uh, uh, the the Christocentric the 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 cross hermeneutic what what's it called where uh, he reinterprets all Old Testament passages in light of the cross and so um there there's a lot of mitigating texts that might be unsavorable savorable to modern audiences and so that that's how that's how this is laid out if if you prioritize the Bible over all else you move to the right. If you prioritize philosophy, uh, you get moved to the left. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of people are secretly uh, open theists, or rather they don't know that they are because they're not familiar with classical definitions of God. I would be very pleased if just uh, congregations in general just went straight out and said exactly what they believe and the foundations of it in classical theism because a lot of people would just just get out of there <laughs> because yeah it's so it's so weird that uh, people uh, have come up with these ideas about god uh, through philosophy instead of the bible yeah but, greg yeah. greg points out the cruciform cruciform hermeneutic is uh greg boyd's hermeneutic for mitigating old testament passages but your your question yeah most most people are open theists and you're going to find that in any century and in, in any any place uh, even within the time of Augustine, they're all open theists, except for the, the mainline preachers, the, the, the intellectual elite of the Christian world. All those people are Platonists. But the, any any other century, everyone's open theists. Your question was, what does neo-Molinism yes. mean and, and teach? Yeah. And so neo-Molinism is the idea that it, it's a philosophical construct for the operation of omniscience that, one second. That in, in Molinism, God knows all possibilities that are possible, but he also knows the future in absolute sense. Neo-Molinism is a redefined omniscience in which 
God knows all routes, all branches, all trees of all events, all possibilities, and then he helps actualize them in the moment. So there's not a defined future, but he still has these branching paths of knowledge into the infinite. God knows all things possible and actual in neo-Molinism. Would you say that that is what dynamic omniscience is? Was yes, the, very much. But neo-Molinist term uh, came predated dynamic omniscience term. And so right. this was made probably uh, 2005. I don't know when this was made. But um, before this dynamic omniscience language happened, Greg Boyd uses the term neo-Molinism to describe his, his views about how God's omniscience works. So redefined or non-omniscient. So it, let's, let's say someone thinks that God doesn't know something currently on earth. They're an open theist, but they don't believe in classical omniscience. They don't believe in neo-Molinism. And they might believe in a type of omniscience, but it, a type of omniscience that doesn't necessarily include present knowledge. You know, mm. someone like that would be pushed to the right. I'm not sure where I am on this. I just deny classical theism. This right. So do you think God's omniscience operates by metaphysical rules in the ether? I don't know. I don't know about enough about what the ether is and what God does and how he knows things. I really don't want to put those things on my lips at all. If I can. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's, people make very definitive statements. Oh, so, so God knows all things possible. And it's like, what, what, where, what is, where, where's this information coming from? They're like, see in the Bible, this one time he told uh, David what would happen when Saul was approaching the gates. So therefore he knows all possibilities forevermore into the future in all circumstances. Like, I haven't, I don't know about that. I don't, is that the type of knowledge God even wants? Does God care to, to uh, micromanage all possibilities of toilet paper that's flushed down the toilet to wherever it could go infinitely into the future? Maybe God doesn't even care about that type of knowledge. Yeah. I would also say that it is, conceivably possible that the platonic you know idea uh like the classical theism is right i mean it, it's conceivably possible that that's true but i find it strange that the bible would be written the way it is if that was the case it would be far more easy far easier for god to you know directly communicate these things about himself because i mean the ancient israelites they weren't like stupid desert rats that you know uh, didn't weren't capable of understanding things on the same level as Plato was. Oh, okay, you came along Plato, and he just figured out God on his own, and that's because people weren't ready yet? What? Yeah, what so is? that the Bible very much depicts God as a person. And uh, Platonism, Neoplatonism, wants to depict God as uh, a mechanical abstract. That the, these are metaphysical properties of God, and they work in these precise ways. Whereas in the Bible, that's not what a person is. A person has volition. A person has will. The person has desires. They have likes. They have dislikes. They have a tool belt of options. They, they are self-actualizing individuals. In, 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 in Calvinism, they say God is asse, but really God's, God's not self-actualizing. He, do, he doesn't, he's, he's just a mechanism that's in the universe that must operate based on predefined principles. Looking He's not a person. Through, looking through these classical conceptions, Asse was pretty much the only one I found 
or maybe there was more, but I say I found a oh, that sounds reasonable. Like I say that's not super unreasonable, but perhaps that's just the surface level of what it means. Except for it entails him being pure actuality with no potentiality or mo no potency. And so, so I God say, So I say on its own wouldn't necessarily be a problem but it's with these other things that it becomes a problem i think a say is it basically entails a divine pure actuality that okay. that's I, they're they're intricately linked and they're not separable mm. yeah well I, th I think that was it man thanks so much for allowing me to come and indulge my selfish desire to have a conversation with you that was super super nice yeah, absolutely. Uh, fun times, even though you're trying to get me burned as a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I gotta, I, what man's gotta do what the man's gotta do, right? Uh, I didn't try to get you burned as a heretic, but I did want to have some answers to some questions that I have in regards to you. So, I mean, I could have asked you just uh, in private, I suppose, but it's more fun to do it this way. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's good times. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, peace and blessings to you, yours, your entire family, and everyone you know. Yeah. God bless you, brother. Uh, All right. We'll, we'll end you. there. God bless the audience as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good talking to you.